0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the online LSE festival and welcome to this session, which is how to do good for and create social impact, which is part of our Skills for a Fast Changing World series here at LSE. We're really delighted to have all of you with us. And while we're waiting for everybody to arrive, please do think about just telling us in chat where in the world you're coming from. It's always really wonderful to uh, get a feel for that. Great, it's really stunning to see this global presence uh, at LSE, really fantastic. Okay, Um, we shall get going. I'm Jonathan Roberts. I am the teaching director at LSE's Marshall Institute. I'm also the uh, course convener on LSE's online certificate course, Social Entrepreneurship, and I lead our master's programme in social business and entrepreneurship, also at the Marshall Institute. I'm going to talk for about... um, 35, 40, 45 minutes about some skills around social entrepreneurship, about how to do good better. Uh, After that, I hope to have a little time to answer any queries that you might have uh, about this topic. So at any time, please do feel free to use the uh, Q&A box uh, in Zoom to send over your query. I can't guarantee I'm going to answer all of your questions, but I will try my very best if i don't answer you immediately that's because i'm storing it up um, until the end so please do have those questions uh, coming at me okay let me get some slides up to uh, help us on our way there we are so Let me start by invoking one of the founders of the London School of Economics, and that was the Irish playwright, uh, George Bernard Shaw. And uh, George Bernard Shaw said, um, you look at the world and you ask why. I dream of things that could be, and I ask why not? And that sense of imagination of dreaming about how we could create a more socially just, uh, a more climate friendly, uh, a better society is what drives so many of us. And people who put that into practice, those dreamers who try and enact this vision, we call them change makers, we call them social activists, we call them social entrepreneurs. But doing social change, getting those dreams into practice is a really hard thing and let me just begin by telling you a short story some of you may know it it's uh, about play pumps and it's been written about very well by a philosopher called William McCaskill in his book Doing Good Better and the story is this Um, there was a marvelous invention when children were spinning around on a roundabout this would pump up water and This was potentially seen to be a solution to the problem of pumping up water in sub-Saharan Africa. A social entrepreneur bought the patent for this. And in fact, millions and millions of pounds were invested in this remarkable technical innovation. The only problem was that in practice, it didn't work very well. In order to pump that water up from the ground, you had to keep that kinetic energy going at a fast pace for a considerable time. And of course, children don't play like that. They get on it, play for a while and get off again. So unfortunately, it was the mothers in these villages, the women, who we have been trying to help, who ended up having to push this roundabout round and round to draw up water. And you can imagine how undignified and difficult that was. Furthermore. The roundabouts would break down, there weren't parts available to fix them. And soon you had this unfortunate vision of roundabouts with weeds growing on them, not being used. Other cheaper methods of pumping being used in their place. Now it's very easy to be wise after the event. And I have the greatest respect for the people who tried to do this. And they have since um, changed the way they implement these products and it's working better. But mistakes were made here, and it's an example of good intentions, not well implemented, not creating social impact. So what I'd like to do today is to see if we can avoid some of these mistakes while putting our dreams uh, into action. So the four components I'm going to look at today are these. uh, Understanding a social problem. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on that. I'm going to introduce you briefly to some tools of the social entrepreneurs trade. I'm going to talk about what sort of organization we should form. That's a vital decision for anybody who is going into this field. And finally, the vitally important element how do you know you're making a difference? How do you measure your impact? And across all these four uh, dimensions, there are some principles going on here. We're trying to bring the rigor of social science into this field of dreams, into this field of private action for public benefit. To some extent, we're trying to blend the techniques of business with the techniques of social purpose. Let's see if we can do social purpose better with some learning from how business does it. Not uncontroversial, and we will talk more about that. And a third principle is this. We don't do this top-down. We do this always co-creating with the users whom we are trying to help. So those are our guiding principles as we go through this this session. First of all, let's consider our understanding of a social problem. I'm sure if you're attending this, this session, many of you may well have an idea, an idea for solving a social problem and Controversially, I'm going to say, stop. Stop right there. Because the idea does not come first. What comes first is truly understanding the social problem that you are trying to fix. If you've done that already, then I take it all back. Go ahead. If you haven't, really consider the problem. Social problems are complicated. They're more complicated than trying to make money in a profit-making organization. Now, I know that's hard, I know it's complicated, but social problems are more complicated than that. And here are some of the reasons. First of all, what is our bottom line here? What is the objective we're trying to achieve? What is good health? What is good education? These are contested and controversial. If you ask different people, they will have very different answers. So being very, very clear about what your key objectives are and how you might measure them is a very, very important first step. No clarity about bottom line. The second point is that there are complex structures of cause and effect in social problems. So to give you a quick example, let's think about um, knife crime in London and in other cities by by males, uh, a common problem. So what do we think the the cause of that is? Um, Could it be um, gangs? They're almost certainly implicated in this. Could it be family breakdown and a lack of male role models for young people? That's possible. Could it be weak policing? Could it be policing that is too strong? Could it be policing which is discriminatory against certain communities? And therefore, is actually racism part of this story? Is it government policy? Is it shutting up youth clubs? Is it actually problems of a lack of jobs in a particular area? Are the schools just not doing their jobs properly in educating these young people? So you immediately begin to see that this is an extremely complex set of interactions in this uh, social area. And you have to have A great deal of clarity in understanding what I call the point of inflection. What is your precise place in this ecosystem? How are you going to influence these complicated systems of cause and effect? How are you actually going to identify that you are making a difference? The third uh, complexity of a social problem I've already begun to allude to, and that is there are a vast number of actors in this field. There are uh, political institutions, there are state agencies, there are often profit making organizations, non profit organizations, there are families, there are campaigning groups. Um, the, the list is, is endless. And in order to understand how you are going to make a difference and what the response will be to your uh, endeavor, you need to be very clear about what the system is around the particular social problem you are trying to address. And one final, very complicated problem, which is very rarely referenced, and that is what actually is your definition of social value? How do you understand a good society? Any decision about a social intervention has some moral consequence and it has some moral meaning, but often that is typically unstated and unexamined. I've got a couple of questions here. There are many more that we could ask about value. So is your aim to help as many people as possible? We would call that a utilitarian approach. Or are you going to help the most vulnerable, a social justice approach? Is the redistribution of power important to you, a more egalitarian approach? Very significant when we're talking about campaigns such as Uh, Me Too or Black Lives Matter. Most uh, social interventions will have some assumption along these lines, even if it is unstated. So again, before you attempt to implement your social uh, intervention, think very carefully. What am I trying to do here? What am I trying? Who am I trying to help? What is my understanding of a good society? So that's about understanding a social problem. The other thing I would like to draw your attention to is how we know about a social problem. What is informing our decision-making when we create an idea and when we put that idea into practice? Here is a piano keyboard. The question is, why are there so few female concert pianists. And it turns out that there is, um, according to a very, very good book, Invisible Women, that there is a very simple answer to this, that the piano keyboard is too big for 90% of female pianists, and it causes uh, pain and injury uh, to attempt to use it. And what's the reason? Well, quite possibly the reason is that The piano keyboard was designed by men for men. Whether they deliberately or unintentionally left out women, I'll leave that to another day. But the important point is this. How you create a product, how you create a social intervention, really does depend on the knowledge that you have at a given time. So be aware that you might be in some sort of bubble. You might have some sort of particular experience, particular problems if you're coming from a position of privilege and you have the resources to change something, but you may not have the knowledge to change something. So how do we get around that? How do we get around this problem of knowing? Well, here are a few tips for uh, gathering knowledge uh, around your social problem. The first is place the experience of the user right at the center uh, of everything you do, but in particular in how you uh, gather knowledge. Go and listen. Listen to the users and communities that you want to help. What do they need? We're not saying, this is what I think you need. We're asking them, what do they need? What have been their experiences? And in fact, do they have some of the answers we're looking for? We're not imposing our idea. We're looking to see whether they themselves have particular insights which could help us create a solution. So this idea has become familiar in the term lived experience. We're engaging with the actual experience of the users, whether they are disadvantaged because of poverty or disability or some other situation. However, we mustn't just listen to the user. We also must be aware that there is a lot of knowledge about social problems and it is gathered in universities and in think tanks and in professional bodies. And it is very important to engage with the current body of knowledge as well. What do we already know about this problem? Has my idea actually already been tried? Was it tried in a different context and therefore it's fair enough for me to try it in another context or actually have we tried it and we know it doesn't work? And a lot of the time we do see in this field people just doing the same thing again and again because they've come out of, say, the business world, have no knowledge of the current body of expertise and are just doing the same thing again and again. So some awareness of the current body of knowledge. And finally, take time to map the ecosystem that you are working in. Uh, What are all the actors and institutions involved? What are they doing? Where in particular will be your inflection point? So are you going to create a new product, a new app? Do you want to repair something in the supply chain which is affecting the livelihoods of farmers in South America? Or do you want to do something quite different, like campaigning for policy change? Do you think that the only way forward here is actually to change the law? Your understanding by going through this process of challenging your own knowledge, challenging your own sense of value, mapping the ecosystem, listening to the user, this will all help you understand where is my inflection point? How can I solve this social problem? And on that basis, you can then begin to develop your idea. Okay, so for me, understanding is very, very crucial. There's a a quote which is attributed to Einstein, I have no idea whether it is from him, which is along the lines of, if I wanted to save the world, I would spend 95% of my time Uh, investigating the problem and 5% resolving it. And that's very much how I feel about social problems. That is is the order of things. Then when we come to the tools of the trade, it gets a little bit different uh, for reasons that I will explain. The first tool of the trade that I want to uh, draw your attention to is something called a theory of change. What a theory of change is, is a slightly grand name for formally mapping out how you think your idea is going to work. And I mean formally and thoroughly. What are all the inputs going to be in terms of resources, um, uh, people, partnerships? What are the activities going to be? What do you predict are the outcomes? In, In other words, the difference that you will make? And what is the impact, by which we mean long-term, sustainable effects which are undoubtedly attributable to your intervention? But on top of that, what might be the possible unintended consequences, the side effects? What might be the things which will stand in your way? What might be the things which will help you? What are the key assumptions that, that you're making? So we combine all this in a very, very formal and well-structured and thought through theory of change to explain why we think our idea has a chance of being successful. And on that basis, we can create indicators, perhaps at each stage, to judge how well we are actually doing. So that's an important step. It's a step from our understanding of the social problem to our idea and formalizing our idea giving us the possibility of understanding whether we're making a difference, the theory of change. There's a lot of information about theory of change on the internet, so do uh, have a search for that. Now I've stressed the importance of taking time to understand. Now I'm going to stress the importance of moving quickly. And this is the idea drawn from business studies or entrepreneurship, that you can do something called frugal innovation you can test really quickly the assumptions around your product or your prototype. And that is what did not happen with the play pump. They moved too quickly, installed it in too many places, spent a very, very large amount of money before they understood it was not working. So what we suggest here is you prototype and you test very quickly and using your theory of change, you understand what are the key assumptions here? How am I assuming that people will respond or behave? What am I assuming about this technology? And then you do uh, tests to see whether they work. And if possible, you will do this again, involving the people you are trying to help, have them as partners in this process, involve them in the testing. Is this actually working for them? Again, is it what what they need? So this process of uh, frugal innovation is very valuable. And something to stress here is that it really is okay to fail, provided we've done our best. Social change requires risk-taking. One of the problems we have in our societies is that governments don't want to take risks. And you can understand why. If they take risks and they don't work out, then it's all over the newspapers. It's not good for the next election. In the world of private action for public benefit, our job is to take risks to create social innovation. But the task is to fail swiftly, to learn very swiftly that what we're proposing is not going to work before we've invested millions. Also crucially to learn from that failure so we can inform our future activities, so we can inform the activities of others. My final tool of the trade, and this is a very selective sample. There are many tools of the trade I could have referred to, but my final one is I think a very crucial one. Much of what I'm saying in this presentation is about rigor, uh, robustness, being scientific, but we also have to be storytellers in this field. Uh, You could have a really good, robust, rigorous idea full of understanding unless you can communicate that idea with a persuasive narrative, you won't receive the funding and support you need to get it off the ground. So whether you are making a case for a grant to a foundation, whether you're making a really intimidating 10-minute pitch to profit-making investors, whether you're seeking partnership with government, you've got to be able to tell a really compar- a compelling narrative about your idea and why it will work. And it is surprising how many non-profits and how many charities do not create that narrative uh, for themselves. Okay, so that's the uh, the tools of the trade. I'm now going to move to a uh, very significant and uh, challenging area, which is you will almost inevitably want to form an organisation to put your idea into practice, whether it's, campaigning and advocacy, whether it's a new product and new service. There are a few moments when you might not, social movements are on the borderline of organization and non-organization, but in principle, you will want to create an organization for impact. Now, this is a very simplified uh, diagram of some of the options for you as you are creating an organization. And I can't emphasize enough the importance of finding the right organizational form. If you commit, for instance, to a charitable nonprofit, you can't roll back on that. You can't turn a charitable nonprofit into a profit-making company, um, or at least it's extremely, extremely difficult. So choice of organizational form is very, very crucial. So let's look at these. On the extremes of this diagram are more conventional organisations. On the left-hand side, I have the corporation, the profit-making corporation. However, I am acknowledging that there are a number of uh, corporations who appear to have some sort of social purpose. It's not their primary purpose. They're still trying to make money, but they appear to have some sort of social purpose too. Examples might be Patagonia. Uh, It might be Unilever. And I'm going to give you another couple of examples as, as we go along. On the right-hand side, we have a traditional nonprofit, which is getting its funding from philanthropy. It's not engaging in any commercial activities. It's the conventional charity as we know it. One thing to flag up about the conventional nonprofit is if it's getting all its money from philanthropy, often that makes life very difficult. If you talk to the chief executives of Uh, These sorts of organisations, they will spend most of their time trying to raise funds year on year, every day. They would say 24-7. It's a real battle. There's a real problem of insufficient funds in these organisations, which I will come back to. And then in the centre, we have a very interesting um, emerging group of organisations. Some of them have been around a long time, but there's been an acceleration in the last 10 to 20 years. And these we call social enterprises. They are hybrid organisations which are merging some sort of primary social purpose with commercial activities. And they range from a non-profit organisation which is engaging in commercial activities, the trading non-profit, to uh, a social cooperative. So in other words, an organisation with some sort of social intention, but where it is run by the employees or by the customers, say parents running a childcare centre, or it might be run by uh, the whole community in some sort of shared ownership manner. Then more controversially, we have organisations which are set up as profit-making organisations, but which suggest that they have a primary social purpose controversial whether we should call them social enterprises, I have got for-profit social venture there. But what I am going to suggest to you is that any of these organisational forms might be a place to create social impact. So if you did go and work for Unilever, for instance, you could have a considerable impact on climate change and uh, other Uh, climate problems, uh, problems of waste, you could have a really strong effect on uh, hygiene and uh, health in some emerging economies. So there is the potential to do social good, to create social impact in each and every one of these organisational types. But the question is, given what your idea is, given the environment you're working in, given the people you're working for, what is the right fit between organizational form, organizational structure, and what you want to do? And that can be a real challenge. I've got a few um, small ideas about how you can begin to think about this, but it is a complicated um, area. So here are a few uh, questions for, for you to think about. A first question is, um, can economic value be captured? What do I mean by that? I mean, basically, can you charge people for this product? If the answer is yes, you can, then you have the potential to create a commercial business model. Note that a commercial business model doesn't mean you're a for-profit organization. You can be a non-profit organization and have a commercial business model. But the first step is this, is it possible to capture value by charging the users for the service you are operating? If the answer is no, and it so often is in this field, then you clearly have to be a non-profit trading, a non-trading organization relying on philanthropy. And a good example of this is uh, a great organization called Partners in Health. Many of you may know it, which has done remarkable work to restructure health systems in Haiti, Rwanda, Peru. And there is no chance of a commercial relationship in those contexts. Uh, They're dealing with very, very disadvantaged people, very, very complicated uh, health issues. Philanthropy was the only way forward for that organization. They have increasingly begun to work with government and that is an option for non-profit organizations which are not commercial to create uh, grant relationships or even contracts with governments in order to uh, push through um, your social mission. But just a caution there, uh, governments can be quite overpowering. If you do go down that route, are you in danger of losing your independence over, over what you do? So now we have a choice if we are able to charge people uh, in some way for uh, the services we provide. Do we do it on a nonprofit or a for-profit basis? Well, there are disadvantages, as I've said, to being a nonprofit, and sometimes these are overlooked. Uh, understandably, we may want to reach the nonprofit organizational form because it feels right, because it's ethical, um, because it's a signal of our morality. The problem is that it is, as I've said, very difficult to get consistent funding for non-profits. And in particular, uh, you can't get equity investment. So if you want to scale up your organization, then you don't have that ability to go to investors and say, hey, I need another 500,000 or 2 million to uh, take my uh, great idea forward. Also, think about this. We want to have the very best inven- interventions for social impact. Increasingly, they will require the very best data analysts, the very best software engineers. And that's a market which is outside any definition of nonprofit or for profit. It's just a labor market. If we want to be able to employ those people, we have to be able to give them the salaries that they expect to have. They may make some concession of 10% because they're working for non profit but we have to be able to pay them. And so we have to beware whether the non-profit form may prevent us attracting the talent we need to do what we want to do. So there are times when we may, we, we may want to reach for the for-profit form. And a key question here is, do we think profits is aligned with social value? Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, One example is we all know that uh, eating meat is uh, a bad thing for climate change because of the the gases produced by the the cows as they they are um, nurtured and grown. And so if we can get people moving off meat-based products, that's a good thing. So we can create plant-based burgers uh, etc and as a meat eater i can say some of these products are really rather good now and that is something where profit and social value are entirely aligned the more of these plant-based burgers we can sell uh, the more impact we will have on climate change there is no conflict and so there's no problem with uh, profit making form but there are times when there might be conflict Uh, For instance, take a non-profit, so take a nursery, a kindergarten, that wants to provide services both to people who can pay a normal fee, but also people who can't afford to pay. So that means they will offer subsidies to the people who can't afford to pay. That's not going to be attractive to someone who wants to maximise profit. So if you want to go down that route, then it's likely that you're going to have to be a non-profit organisation and find your subsidy from uh, philanthropy, or maybe even from government. So there's a phrase we have which is lockstep. And this really guides us as to whether profit making, profit making model is the right one. Is there lockstep between social value and the ability to make profit? But even in a commercial non we still have the danger of something called mission drift. And that's uh, an important term to remember. It is the idea that our, our determination to stay sustainable through our market trading gets in the way of our mission. So to give an example, do we start trying to help more those who can afford to pay? Do we start trying to help those who are less expensive to help? Um, because that makes our organization more sustainable. So whenever we're using a commercial model, we have to to bear that in mind. So in some, using a commercial model, especially a for-profit model, treat that with extreme care. But in some circumstances, it can be really, really valuable in scaling up our impact. The final... um, um, Organizational form I want to draw attention to is cooperatives. So, a lot of nonprofits can tend to be run by an elite trustee board. That is an area of significant controversy in this field. For profits are, of course, owned fundamentally by shareholders. What about if we want to, if part of our definition of social value, which we came to earlier, what about if part of that definition is? Um, distributing power, ensuring that people who are disadvantaged or in particular difficult situations, they have some sort of say in this organisation and in this uh, intervention. In those cases, a cooperative form might be extremely valuable, where each and every person has a membership stake in an organisation. And examples of this um, stretch from parent owned kindergartens to um, to uh, agricultural cooperatives in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and to um, nursing care in some circumstances in the UK can be a very, very powerful uh, model. Okay, so that is a very short summary of a complex area uh, choosing your organizational form. The final element I would like to firmly draw your attention to is measuring your impact um, how do you know you are making a difference and again, so often in this uh, field for um, for the best of intentions, um, we don't really know, and um, some claims are made without any evidence frequently you will open up the annual review of a non-profit or a charity and it will say we have reached 10,000 people or we have run a training program for 500 people a month that does not say you're making a difference it does not say you have created impact it just tells us that you have done some activities what we're really looking for is uh outcomes in the first instance which is that you can say that in some way you have made a difference but also impact and that is both that that difference is long term and that that difference is plainly attributable to your intervention so to give an example of output outcomes and impact uh, output would be running a training session an outcome would be that someone uh, has demonstrably learned something from that training session an impact would be that that learning is actually improving the lives of people on an ongoing basis in some way in our community and it can be very very difficult to assess that but that is our ideal to try and uh, measure and claim that impact so how can we go about this well it can be a very complicated field uh, impact evaluation but let me give you a few a few uh, little guide points the first is build evaluation in right from the start get it in the theory of change it's not something that you can do properly after you've put your intervention into practice plan it from right from the start the second is have a very clear idea of your definition of impacts and what the indicators are going to be of that. Um, next, beware of the counterfactual. So this means, might this have happened anyway? So to give an example, you are helping um, uh, people in uh, gangs to stop offending, stop committing crimes and the crime rate goes down. How do you know that wouldn't have happened anyway? is there maybe something else going on in the environment that is uh, causing that effect? So always think about, could this have happened anyway? What's the counterfactual? Another question is unintended outcomes. So maybe you can say you have got a very specific impact, but has that actually had a negative impact elsewhere? To give one example, which is controversial on an ongoing basis is, um, teaching um, literacy and numeracy in schools and testing. Now, if you uh, have that as a very fixed outcome, which, um, um, and you uh, hold schools accountable, does that mean that they will stop teaching history or they'll stop teaching arts or they will restrict sporting activity for those children because they know that this is the fundamental measure that they have got to achieve. Now, there are, sensible and intelligent ways around such a problem, but that is an example of unintended outcomes. You've achieved the impact you've defined, you've made something else worse. And if we truly want to make the world better, then we need to understand our positive impacts and our negative impacts. Measuring impacts is tough and it's time consuming. So I just want to emphasize why it is uh, so important. The first is that it's important for you as someone who wants to change the world. You can learn from the process of evaluating. You can learn whether you are making a difference or whether you need to change things. And in that way, you can maximize your social impact. It's also extremely valuable to have this in your pocket when you're communicating to others about how you're making a difference. And that communication will often obviously be to obtain more resources for what you are doing. So increasingly, philanthropic foundations and governments are going to look for firm evidence that what you are doing is working, so it's very useful to have a formal evaluation for that purpose. And an even wider benefit is uh, is this one. The more we can generate robust evidence of what works, whether it's in education or in the homelessness field uh, or in health, and the more we can share that in a sophisticated and robust manner, The quicker we will achieve the social impact that we all want so it's some idea of a public good here that we are creating evidence about what works and indeed what doesn't work uh, in a particular field so that we can all uh, create social impact together so that's a very brief summary of um, how you might uh, measure your impact there are lots and lots of other uh, questions and issues i could raise about that but i hope that gives you a feel for it Uh, A final comment on this field. Um, Anyone can be a social entrepreneur and anybody can do this well. But you do have to be robust and you have to um, exhibit certain qualities which can be quite challenging. So on the one hand, uh, I have stressed that you need to dismiss your knowledge. You need to challenge your values. You need to switch off everything you have taken in and listen. So that requires humility. And yet at the same time, it requires a great deal of confidence too to push through all these, um, all these strategies to create a narrative to be prepared to stand up and give that narrative to people who will perhaps give you funding. So it's tough. You will require empathy and you will require a thick skin as well because there will be people who tell you your idea is bad and it's not going to work and to just stop right now and it will require some skill because as I hope I've shown in this uh, presentation uh, there are some particular skills and strategies that you can use in order to give you more of a chance of uh, attaining social impact. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super-rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I'm now gonna have a look at the Q&A to see if I can answer some of the questions that um, you have for me. Um, so I'll just have a quick leaf through that for a moment. Uh, in the meantime, I'll just raise my final slide, which is um, we, ask, we see ourselves as an academic uh, institute, but also as a movement to create social impact with rigor uh, and with humility. So please do join us in, f- in whatever way you would like, whether it's by keeping in touch with our newsletter, emailing me, joining our courses, get in touch with us in whatever way you would like. Uh, Okay. Yeah, so uh, I will just go down bit by bit. So there's a question from uh, Larry Adams. Uh, Is it really ethical for the pump to be uh, patented? That's a difficult word to say, to have a patent. Um, So if our aim is to help a large group of people Uh, who are struggling to access life-saving resources, should this be a private good? Should it not be a public good? Absolutely great question. And, of course, that uh, goes to questions way beyond play pump. It goes to vaccinations, for instance. Um, You know, why on earth should there be any sort of patent on vaccinations when if only uh, AstraZeneca or um, Pfizer would release that, we could give it out so easily? Um, A couple of answers to that, I guess um, the traditional answer from the capitalist sector is: if you expect people to put research and money into these things, um, then you have to reward them. And if you don't, this sort of research is not going to happen, and we're not going to have that that sort of uh, that sort of innovation. So that would be one reason. Um, I guess what I see here is a situation where a social entrepreneur did buy the patent for a social purpose now i would imagine if the play pumps have been successful then they might have made that open source or something like that so you're absolutely right this is a very very important issue whether how far we do open source these these uh, innovations and it's another argument against the profit making profit making uh, motivation in this field um okay um How can we get, uh, so one of the problems here raised by Sonia Wolf is um, understanding the social problem is important, but so often interventions and programmes don't get put into practice by politicians uh, because yes, they have other priorities. How can we get better at this? Well, there are several answers here. Uh, One is that we both need to create these innovations and products, but we also need to campaign. So getting better at campaigning uh, is one example and... There are whole uh, theories about how we might uh, campaign better. Um, Another um, suggestion is that sometimes we can use the market to scale up um, innovations and bypass uh, government um, to do this. And I think another interesting idea is that um, there are emerging systems where we can provide proof of concept to government. Government is very nervous of taking on innovation for the reasons I've described. The social impact bond, uh, which some of you may may have heard of, is one way of creating a system where government isn't involved in the first instance and only has to pay for a service if the service is successful. Now, that's obviously very, very attractive to government. So, if we can uh show that use that sort of system then maybe we can engage government but i'm afraid as well there is a wider question of how our politics is working which is is slightly depressing and beyond uh, beyond this particular uh, session um um so an interesting question from uh daria who says could you operate two organizations at the same time for example start with a for-profit organization and if it's successful, open a parallel non-profit organization with the the same mission. Um, Yes, yes. I mean, there are multiple different business models which you could put into practice to um, get around some of the problems I was discussing. So uh, one example and um, quite a simple, and perhaps quite crude one is um, if you're doing really well, you give a percentage of your, of your profits as a philanthropic grant to your own charitable foundation, which will provide the same services to people who um, can't afford to buy them. Um, so that, um, that will uh, often happen. Um, there's an organization uh, in India, I forget its name, but which uh, does... Um, uh, remarkable um eye surgery and it charges the pay the patients who can charge who can pay for it and then uses philanthropy to pay for those who who can't uh, pay um, you can have um, non-profit organizations which actually own a for-profit subsidiary that's also an option so you could actually provide some kind of service within the for-profit and extract the profit, put it into your non-profit organization, helping people. So uh, there are all sorts of complicated options you could use. Yes, that's right. Um, So there is a fascinating question from uh, uh, Asen. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, What advice would you give organizations to help them in choosing their social causes in order to optimize uh, positive social impact? Very interesting question. Um, And actually a whole industry is developing around this. And some of you may have heard um, of the effective altruism uh, movement, which is precisely attempting to do this. It's attempting to construct technical frameworks by which you can measure uh, what is likely to be the most impactful uh, cause you could um, support. And the sort of criteria that you would look for are, how many people are suffering from this? Um, How deep is the impact uh, on them? Um, How likely is it that whatever innovation we have is going to be successful? And how likely is it that anybody else is gonna do this as well? And if you put all those sort of questions into a pot, you can come out with an answer about what you should support. Uh, In fact, that's extremely difficult to put into practice because the answers to those four questions are not immediately visible. And there are some organisations who are doing this, and I admire them for it. But a word of warning, while I have emphasised the importance of effective uh, evaluation and effective impact, it is also the case, too, that um, some of our most pressing social problems are not easily measurable. And I do just want to flag that up. And it's it's something of a heresy in this field to suggest that not always is it possible to fully evaluate. But... But let me give you one example. I think if we look back at the civil rights movement in in the US, it would have been quite difficult to apply a framework where you are measuring incrementally each stage of your success in achieving civil rights. It's possible to think about such a framework, but in the end, I think there's an element of gut instinct in some circumstances that that is such a powerful area that we need to put as much funding into it as we can to Uh, campaign and create social change. Um, So I think um, the final answer to that question is see if you can get beyond remedies. So get beyond things which are just um, helping the symptoms and see if you can get to the causes. So for an example, um, something like gender inequality. Um, Now we could do various things which will support people support uh, people who have suffered from gender inequality. Um, But if we want to have to create real impact, maybe what we need to do is campaign for normative change or try and introduce really compelling interventions which will make men think differently and behave differently. Again, you can immediately see that there's a controversial tension here because are we actually suggesting, suggesting we shouldn't help people who are suffering from domestic violence? Well, of course not. However, sometimes that is what effective altruism can lead us to believe, that we should really aim for the causes and not the symptoms. So um, I think uh, we have to do all these things, but some of our impact is in tackling the fundamental causes and not not the symptoms. Okay, another question. Um, uh, Yes, a question about campaigning and protesting and concerns about uh, governments being more... Uh, totalitarian in their approach to the right to protest, and that is certainly true in the UK, as it is in other countries. Um, yep, that is perhaps a slightly different question to the one we're addressing here, but it's a very important one. And uh, again, one of the key things that one could do as an important cause is to actually advocate advocate for a free society, uh, which enables everybody to campaign for, for social justice and social causes. And uh, there is considerable concern about some of the the laws at the moment around civil society. Um, can I give any book recommendations? Um, uh, I would say read um, Doing Good Better by William McCaskill. It's a book about effective altruism, so I don't entirely agree with it, but it's an extremely challenging book, which I think you will find uh, extremely useful. Um, uh, I would read, uh, now, what's it called? Um There's a book uh, on, if you want to get into how you understand value, I would look at uh, Martha Nussbaum and her work on capabilities, which is absolutely fascinating and explains how you can bring a human rights um, perspective into this uh, field. Um, If we are centering user experience for identifying social problems, why not empower them to design and implement solutions on their own? Indeed. I think this is a movement that is beginning to take off in contemporary philanthropy. Uh, It is coming in various forms. There's something called participatory grant making where um, the end user, whether it's someone who's got disability or someone in a particular geographical community is in charge of allocating grants uh, given by a philanthropist. But equally uh, what we have, a growing awareness of is something called trust-based philanthropy which is where you give the funds to a community and you don't create any requirements about what that community has to do now it's more challenging if you're a social entrepreneur because part of your whole raison d'etre is that you are the one doing this so if you are someone who's coming from a privileged background and trying to help a community how prepared are you to give your autonomy and control to, to that community, it's a, it's a fascinating question. But yes, yes, I agree, empower the communities. Um, can the danger of mission drift happen unintentionally or is it always uh, intentional? How can leaders of nonprofits avert this problem? Uh, undoubtedly, it can happen unintentionally. And mission drift is not just about commercial revenues, although so often it is, it's whenever you find yourself moving away from your mission to chase resources. So mission drift could also be if you're chasing after government resources, because that's the only thing that's going to keep your organization alive. But government wants you to help people you don't particularly want to help because they're out of area or something of that kind. Or government wants you to use particular systems uh, which you don't want to use. This is a form of, of mission drift. So I think the challenge for nonprofit leaders is to be very, very firm about what the mission is, to be very alert to these sorts of things happening. And most of all, to try not to be dependent on single resource streams. Try and have a diversified uh, resource stream, commercial income, multiple philanthropic sources, multiple sources from government. And that is one way that you can um, insulate yourself against, um, against mission drift. There are other complicated organizational systems which can be used to uh, remedy mission drift. For instance, you could have very, very clear barriers between the commercial side and the mission side so that the two things don't get um, don't contaminate uh, each other. Uh, uh, okay, a final great question, which I'm afraid I'll have to use as the last one. I must apologize to everybody whose questions I haven't answered. Not because they're not good questions. I just haven't got the time, unfortunately. Email me if you'd like to continue the discussion. Should social entrepreneurs really dream dreams, uh, see visions and hear voices, or should they be a realist and keep it real? Well, what I'm hoping is that this session has been something of a transition between those two things. I think we shouldn't accept the status quo. We should try and disrupt. That's what the idea of entrepreneurship um social entrepreneurship is about. We should try and repair the unjust equilibrium that we live in, but I hope everything in this uh, session has been about keeping it real, keeping it grounded, keeping it based in rigor and uh, knowledge. Um, Thank you so much for attending this. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you and to receive all your remarkable questions. Um, You can find more about our our online courses and our executive master's programme that we run at the Marshall Institute uh, online, and we would love to welcome you to those courses. Um, I hope you very much, very much did enjoy the event. I'd just like to flag up uh, all our upcoming LSE Festival events. In particular, we have another session in this series of, uh, around skills tomorrow. It is uh, Professor Andrew Murray and Dr. Orla Linsky, and they're going to be exploring how to navigate data law in today's changing landscape. Uh, many thanks for attending and good luck with all your projects. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.